Curiosity is not a sin, Harry, but you should exercise caution. He's a time strand. You're fraternizing with the enemy. There's the, um, the Cruciatus curse. We'll celebrate a boy who is kind and honest and brave and true right to the very end. Hey everyone, welcome to Hogwarts, a podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hogwarts, a podcast. We're doing chapter 23, The Yule Ball. Uh, big chapter, surprisingly big chapter. We have Aaron back with us. Hello again. Hey, alright. So, this is a chapter I believe you specifically requested, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was. Well, we'll, we'll get into why I specifically wanted to do this chapter, um as we go, but this chapter is pretty straightforward. It's it's essentially the big moment, the big dance of the Yule Ball, but we also get a little bit of Christmas vibes at the beginning. We get into some... We, we talked for chapters about Harry and Ron and their skirmish that they had. Now we get Hermione-Ron friction. We get some Percy schmoozing a little bit. So there's a lot to discuss. So let's just start with the, the, the Christmas of it all. As we're leading up to this Yule Ball, I really enjoyed the Draco-Hermione wordplay of Draco calling Hermione a long-molared mudblood, which something about him using molared in an insult just really kind of uh, tickled me a little bit. Of just like, that's actually clever that he even knows molars (laughs) at some point. I don't know. It just really impressed me for some reason. Clever, but so horrible. Clever. That's a very good, accurate way of putting it. Clever. But horrible. And then Hermione just comes up with this great comeback. She hears the Draco insult. And is like, oh, Professor Moody, how are you? And he turns around, all uh, all nervous. Twitchy little ferret, aren't you? Great comeback. I love that Harry and Ron are about to react to it. And then after Hermione says that, they're just like, oh, it's cool. Let's just go. Sick bird. Sick bird. Um, like, we don't need to do anything. Yeah, no, she's, she, she got it. Uh, they do notice for the first time that Hermione had her teeth fixed. And they're like, oh, now, well, now that we notice it, how did we not notice it before? Yeah, how did you not notice, like, her teeth were significantly shorter than they usually were? I want to give them flack, but honestly, I could see myself not noticing. Well, all right, fair enough. We do get a serious uh, response uh, from a letter that was written a long time ago. But he notes that he was really impressed with Harry's uh, subduing of the horned tail. And he was actually going to suggest a conjunctivitis curse to the eye, which is what Crumb ended up using. Uh, conjunctivitis is pink eye. <laughs> it's like you're giving the, the dragon pink eye, essentially. Don't think it'd be bad enough to get an egg from it. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the dragon would be awfully confused about like what's going on with it. Does Charlie have to cure that later? Probably. I would assume I, so. Yeah, just unless the there's dragon... a little bit more to this curse than just pink eye. Maybe. Can, can you imagine Charlie just like dropping some eye drops into a dragon's eye like later? I like how we've had a trip to the dentist and a trip to the eye doctor here in like the first like right <laughs> out the gate. So this is where all the fun starts to begin. You get Harry waking up alarmed that he's staring a house elf right like right up nose to nose almost and you get these big green eyes just staring at you not the first time it is not the first time you're right still alarming altogether 
he ends up, Dobby gives Harry some Quidditch-themed socks, which I thought is a nice gift from Dobby. I mean, that's... They make fun of the socks, but I don't think they sound that bad. No, I don't think they sound that bad either. They're like red and green uh, socks with, like, what, brooms and snitches on them? Yeah. That's fine. That's a good gift for Dobby. That's great. Uh, so... You get a book of Quidditch teams of Britain and Ireland from Hermione. You get Dung Bombs from Ron, which is Ron. You get a box of sweets. You get a sweater with a dragon on it from Mrs. Weasley. You get a pen knife from Sirius that can unlock any lock and undo any knot. I feel like that's an awesome gift. It is. That's a really useful gift, I think. With all the trouble they already get into without it, should he really be giving him that? It's a very serious gift to give. I mean, this is a serious James gift. Don't you think? Like, Yeah. It's probably from their youth. And he's like, we use this all the time. Doesn't it seem like Hermione put the most thought into her gift? Oh, 100%. But she yeah. probably always put the best thought. Like everyone else is just candy and... Tongue bombs. And... Like, she gave him the broom cleaning kit or whatever. Well, like, I guess Molly did actually knit him a sweater and cook for him. Uh, he does get a tissue from the Dursleys. Thankfully, it wasn't used. Uh, that's a plus. <laughs> but uh, he does. I think you have a note on the tissue from the Dursleys, but it's spoilery, yeah? Yes. All right, so Aaron's got a, a spoiler comment on the tissue from the Dursleys for later. Stay tuned for that. So they end up going uh, and just hanging out for quite a while on Christmas Day. They don't really do anything specific. The boys get into a snowball fight. Hermione watches. That's about it. She then goes up to get ready three hours before the Yule Ball. And the boys comment on it and they're like, three hours? You need three hours to get ready for this thing? Well, she also had to go meet her date, who she still won't tell them who it is. That is also true. And then the boys roughly need about an hour, which, for her, at least Ron's perspective, if he knew he was going to have to make alterations to his dress robes, probably should have given himself more than an hour, but... Should have also found someone a little more precise. That, too. Or he could have just been like, Harry, can you just, like, put in an order for some new mm -hmm. dress robes? I'll pay you back in time. <laughs> like, dude, hook me up with something. Harry and Ron... Uh, find out that they... I love how they, like, are told of this. Like, they don't have this thought themselves. Like, Dean specifically comes up and tells them, like, how did you two snag the prettiest-looking girls in our entire year? Like, I, I love how it's an outsider's view of it, and they, like, right over their heads. Well, Harry isn't looking at their year. It's true. <laughs> That's true. He's looking at an older girl. That's fair. But Ron, who is so tied up in uh, vanity, and, like, why didn't he go up to, like, Parvati, like, early on and be like, hey, go to the ball with me? He's also obviously tied up in someone else, too, though. Fair enough. Well, he is and he isn't, I guess, unless we're talking about different people. But I think we're talking yeah, about the yeah. same person. All right, uh, so we get to the actual Yule Ball. Well, again, Floor is and in their year either. That's true, too. That's true, too. <laughs> so we get to the Yule Ball. Um, speaking of Floor, we find out that she is going with Ravenclaw Quidditch Captain Roger Davies. And Aaron, I'm going to ask you this question. Is this the highlight of Roger Davies' entire life? 
As far as we know, yeah. That's <laughs> fair enough. Uh, this might be the moment of his life. Uh, just from everything that's told about this pairing, it he seems to be quite, quite delighted. Whether part of that is him himself or part of that is him getting Ron-like affected by her villainess. Do you think he cares? Nope. I do not. Either way. Uh, so, so there's that. We have we have one whole thing that we got to discuss here. Are we ready for this? Are we ready for the whole crumb of it all? Okay. So crumb is accompanied by a pretty girl in blue that Harry doesn't know. Okay. <laughs> a couple seconds go by, a couple minutes go by, and Harry realizes, wait a minute, that's Hermione next to Victor Crumb. Hermione. This suddenly recontextualizes everything that we've had about Crumb being in the library at every single time that they happen to also be in the library. I still maintain that it's not like he wasn't doing some studying, but it didn't seem like that was the priority. <laughs> so we know that Hermione and Victor were uh, enveloped in deep talks throughout the dinner. And he can kind of pick up a little parts of the conversations, like Crumb uh, comes from Durmstrang, which is a smaller castle, less comfy, larger grounds. And then Karkaroff cuts him off and like, can you stop talking about our castle that's hidden and secret? So when <laughs> She'll you figure this out. When you say they only sent their 10 best students, uh -huh. if the school is like half the size, maybe they sent their only 10 17-year-olds. <sighs> okay. We have talks on numbers that we got to get to at some point. Because I, I do want to talk more about that. Because, like, Durmstrang... Well, you want to talk about numbers. We'll talk okay. about numbers in a second. All right. So, uh, another part of the conversation is him trying to figure out how to pronounce her name. Which is Hermione and Hermione Ninny. But we finally... And this is the fabled line that told everybody how to actually pronounce her name. her my o -ni. Hermione. So this is the line everybody points to is like, wow, I was pronouncing this name terribly wrong. I was, but now I don't remember what I was saying. I think a lot go with, maybe not. I think Hermione is what I used to say before this. Hermione is a popular one. I don't know. There, there's a couple of variations of that first one that she points to here. Let's just say this pairing causes quite the stir. <laughs> you have... Draco being stunned, you have Pansy Parkinson being stunned, you have uh, Harry's date, Parvati, being stunned, and you have Ron, who is not happy. He is not... First of all, let's, let's not go away from Hermione here for a second. Obviously, we mentioned her teeth are now fixed, so that's one thing. Her hair is not, like, the typical bushy wildness. It's, like, sleeked back into, a, like, a bun. Uh, obviously, the dress fits her well. She's looking great. So give Hermione her props, which I'm sure Ron is now, again, noticing, like, oh, she is a girl. Congratulations. Took four years. Took four years. Uh, obviously, Crumb noticed she's a girl well, well before Ron apparently did. Uh, but Ron accuses Hermione of fraternizing with the enemy, which is a great quote, too. Uh, and I realized during this scene that... I don't know when was the last time you saw the Goblet of Fire movie. Has it been a while? A little bit. It's my least favorite movie. That's fair. Uh, but 
this scene, I think, is done, like, the Yule Ball is actually done really well, because a lot of these quotes are, like, word for word in the movie. So clearly in the movie, of all the things they could have focused on, they decided to be like, nope, we're doing the Yule Ball darn near, like, scene for scene. But who knows? I would have liked them to do more of the actual tournament. But just, you know, whatever. This room, this great hall, to, to Aaron's point, I don't know if you want to get started on it now, but they mentioned there are a hundred small tables. Each of them sit roughly a dozen people. That's that, that's a lot. <laughs> and they only mention like 30-ish guests. Like you have the band, the ministry officials, and the two other schools. It's like 30-ish people. Yep. So, and, and it's and, important to point out that first, second, and third years. Just what I was going to say. They're not there. They're not there, unless they're invited by an older student, but let's, I'm assuming, let's hope that many sixth and seventh year students didn't ask first, second, or third year students to this thing. So really you're talking about fourth or fifth years, maybe asking some third years. Jenny's there. Jenny is there. I don't know how many first years went to this thing. Let's hope not many. Yeah. I would not want to go to a dance as a 17-year-old if there's 11-year-olds with me. No, I remember in high school it was like a stigma for a senior to like ask out a freshman. Like that's like, what what are you doing? And that's 17 to 14. That's what Crumb did. Yes, that is what, yes, that is what Crumb did. All right, let me take the reasonable approach. Yes, it's weird that a 17-year-old would feel obligated to ask a 14-year-old to this dance. And that he stalked her for however long before he even asked. Just because he's a, an international Quidditch player does not mean he does not get nervous talking to women, too. <laughs> if it wasn't for the age difference, but... And he's probably thinking the same yeah. thing. It's like, can Hermione spend one minute away from these two idiots for just a <laughs> second so I could ask her this thing? Sure. <laughs> I'm sure he's thinking the same thing. We have other weird things to get to. <sighs> yes, we do. But... We do have more weird things to get to, yes, but you know what? I'm going to applaud Ludo Bagman for not wearing his Quidditch robes to this event. One time, he did not wear his Quidditch robes. Thank you. I'm kind of surprised he didn't, quite honestly. But Ludo Bagman's an interesting dude. Albus and Karkaroff have an interesting conversation. Because Karkaroff, again, gets on crumb for like revealing all of the secrets of Durmstrang. And then they have an interesting conversation about the secrets of their schools, and Albus is like, I don't pretend to know everything about Hogwarts. And I get surprised every every day, because just the other day I was walking uh, past a room that had the most spectacular uh, chamber pots, I think is the t yeah. phrasing that he used. And when he tried to go back and uh, investigate that room more, they were gone. They weren't there. And how does he end it? Like he does with so many other things, a wink to Harry? Yep, wink to Harry. Uh, we can get a little bit more into that in the spoilers, but, but uh, that was an interesting conversation that he had with, with Igor. Floor is clearly displeased and is just complaining to Roger the entire time that her palace, her palace that she's come from, is much more elegant, much better. Uh, she also doesn't like the food at Hogwarts either. I think it was the last chapter she complains that she won't even fit into her uh, dress robes. Because they have stew on cold days. Yeah. 
like a, like a I guess just a beef stew and the beef savory. Was, yeah, I, I don't know. We get through and we get uh, to the dancing bit because the weird sisters come out to perform after dinner. Oh, by the way, before we get to beyond dinner, can I just mention real quick that they were just given plates and menus and they were like, "What do we do with this?" And then Dumbledore is just like reading the menu and goes like pot roast or whatever he like said whatever the menu was and it just appeared on his plate and what a world would that be i, I think would love that at restaurants wouldn't it be great uh i think it'd just be like ribs and then just like <laughs> ribs appeared like fr- that would get me in so much trouble i oh that would not be good like, yeah just, that would like, be good until the bell came ugh, cheesecake and just like cheesecake appeared oh that'd be bad that'd be really bad but anyway, okay, moving on past the food for just a second. Uh, the Weird Sisters come up after dinner. Uh, I liked their arrangement. They had drums, several guitars, a lute, a cello, and bagpipes. Aaron, I don't know how like deep into music you are, but what songs are you expecting with a lute, a cello, bagpipes, guitars, and drums? I mean, every band I listen to has those instruments. Name one. Like, I'm insulted that you're asking this. I won't even answer. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> it would be an interesting combo. It's, like, orchestral, but also rock. It's really... I don't know what bagpipes would sound like in a rock band. Did the movie have all these instruments? I don't remember bagpipes. I remember them being more, like, guitar, bass, drums. Yeah. Like a regular rock band. I would want to check that out. Uh, speaking of other weird things, look, Moody does something that's real creepy, and Parvati points out just how creepy he is, and what he does is he comments on Harry's socks, which seems innocent enough until you realize he's wearing dress robes, you can't see the socks, so he's looking through Harry's dress robes to see these socks. I also think it's telling that the girl who is just described as the prettiest girl in her year is the one who points it out. That he's creepy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised that she even has a character point out it's creepy. I thought usually she's written things like this and and it's left for people like us to then be like, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Here you have an actual character in world saying, it's creepy. That's creepy. <laughs> He's a creepy dude. So now I wonder if Moody is every girl's least favorite teacher in the like series. I mean, that first lesson, when he's like looking through the back of his head, looking through a desk, you have to think, like, wait, if he can see through all that, like, what? Is what else does that mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's concerning a little bit. It'd be off-putting. And now he's just outright said he's looking through, through someone's clothing. That's really weird. It's bad. That's not good. It's not good. Uh, yeah. So we just want to point out that that's that's not great. Not great. So we're going <laughs> going to go forward. So we have some pairings that come up here. As the dancing begins. Obviously, it starts with the champions, and Parvati is essentially dragging Harry around, leading the dancing. Uh, it's almost as if he was a showpiece, a little bit. 
uh, which he needs. But you have Albus with Madame Maxine to start, and then he switches partners and goes with Sprout, Professor Sprout, the uh, head of Hufflepuff. You get Ludo Bagman with McGonagall, which just seems like a weird pairing. She has a lot of weird pairings in party situations. The she... kiss from Hagrid. Yeah, yeah, she does. And I still like the potential Flitwick McGonagall uh, ship. And that would be uh, Mickwick or Flagonagall. I don't know what ship name you prefer, but we're going with one of those two. I actually like both those names. Fair enough. All right, we're going with both of them. Interchange them as you will. <laughs> but <laughs> right now we get Ludo Bagman with McGonagall. Then Mad Maxine switches from Albus to Hagrid. And we overhear an interesting uh, conversation between the two of them outside in the courtyard. By the way, they've made like this great courtyard outside with like statues and bushes and the whole like it's romantic the fountains and they're actual living fairies in the bushes. So you hear this conversation between Maxime and Hagrid. And Hagrid, I feel like, is a, a little too... A little too honest up front here. Like, they've obviously had interactions before. And she took his arm heading into the Forbidden Forest when he showed Harry the Dragons. They've obviously had interactions. He also thinks they're alone, but they're not in a very private setting. That is also true. I mean, there are literally kids making out in every conceivable bush, which is not a comfortable place to make out. I don't know why they've chosen this particular spot. They're 17 and under. They don't care. That's... Uh, that's a fair point. So, I feel like Hagrid is a little, uh, a little too, excited is not the right word, eager? I, I don't know. He's excited that he's found someone he believes is similar to him, which is great. Except, she's clearly not open to having this conversation, especially maybe just in the setting that they're in, like you said, or, or whatever. But he essentially is speaking about parents. And his mother and his father. And his mother, he alludes to, you know, being one of the last in Britain. And not being a particularly great mother. And, you know, whatever have you. It's, she's a giant. She's a giant. Father, not a giant. Half-breed. Do you remember if that surprised you? No. It didn't surprise I mean, me. I didn't think he was half-giant, but it didn't surprise me either when I... First time I read it? Yeah, it didn't surprise me, only because he's so often described as inhumanly giant. Like, I mean, just... Oh, like, if you actually read the descriptions of Hagrid, they describe yeah. him as, like, hands like trash can lids and stuff, like, big, big dude. So I never really doubted this. So the guy's like, oh, yeah, this tracks. Same. This is about right. Maxime does not react kindly to this. And uh, essentially just storms off without it answering any of Hagrid's questions or conversations or whatever. Maxine, I mean, come on. Like, I think Ron says later, like, who are you fooling? You're as large or larger than Hagrid. They were, Maxine was just dancing with Albus, and his wizard hat was just barely touching her, like, chin. Like, who are you fooling? Come on. But then what Ron just describes after that is... It would be really bad if it got out. So, like, she's not maybe denying it, but she 
doesn't want to talk about it. This is a patented Ron divulging a lot of magical information on us and info dumping. And he goes, giants are known for being particularly dangerous, violent. Uh, most of them, uh, many of them were killed by ores, which I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Professor Bins, if you can enlighten us on that. He'd still make it boring, though. And, yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Uh, they mostly come from the mountains. Most of, uh, obviously, them in Britain is uh, at an extinction level, and but they're found in mountains and other places. So, Ron with his patented info dump on the magical world. Harry has the unfortunate disposition of being seated next to Percy for the dinner. And he's like, am I going to have to hear about... Percy Weatherby? Yes, Percy Weatherby. Uh, who's filling in for Crouch, his super awesome boss that can't ever get his name right, apparently. And Harry's like, am I going to have to sit through lectures on thick-bottomed cauldrons again? Please no. But instead, Percy gets on to talking about him. He likes that he sees Harry talking with Crumb later. He talks to Ludo Bagman about smuggling flying carpets and a ban on Transylvanians dueling, which honestly, I, I, I do kind of want to know more about that. But that's, you know, that's just me being a nerd, I guess. It's just Percy being Percy. It's a lot of Percy. We do get an interesting Snape Karkaroff conversation. Uh, just brief, brief, brief part of it where Karkaroff is essentially saying that uh, he's concerned about signs that he's seeing being very vague and he calls Snape Severus so he uses his first name to which they're like Harry and Ron are like I, I didn't realize Karkaroff and Snape were on like first name basis that's odd when did that happen uh seemed like they weren't really interacting all that much this year so what's that about and then we have then then we come to the end of the night and I'll get your uh, uh, thoughts on all of this but we get Cedric and Harry having an interaction where Cedric owes Harry and he tells him like hey in the, like the most vague terms ever like hey take a bath with the egg mull it over in the water figure it out <laughs> gives him a lot of information it's a lot of information but I think Cedric is and he doesn't know Harry like we know Harry but I think he's given Harry a lot of credit here for being able to figure this out. Where Harry needs very directly, what am I supposed to do with this thing exactly? He even tells him which bathroom to go to. He's like, you know what? You might need some extra time, some extra privacy. Go to the prefect's bathroom. Like fourth door on the left, on the whatever floor. The password is uh, whatever the password was. Spring Fresh or something like that. Something along those lines. Something along those lines. See, what he should have done is he should have turned, told Hermione this. That would have been the smarter way to go about it, yes. And then he would have given her too much information. With her, he could have just said water. <laughs> Probably. That's very <laughs> true. He tries to go on this, like, uh, rambling little, like, oh, you know, mull it over in the water, you know, whatever. You're right. He could have just said, Hermione, egg, water. <laughs> like... You're right. Hermione and went up ahead of time, and Ron got the hint that Cedric didn't want to speak in front of him, so he also went up. So Harry walks into the common room, and it's like a full-blown throwdown between the two. 
And Hermione just comes up, the ultimate wording of the fight comes down to, what is the exact quote? The exact quote is, she goes, well, if you don't like it, you know what the solution is, don't you? Yelled Hermione, her hair coming down out of its elegant bun. Next time there's a ball, ask me before someone else does and not as a last resort. And then Ron just gets this stupefied look on his face and is like, well, she completely missed the point. And then Harry just internally goes, no, I think she got the point a lot more than you actually got the point. And, and checked her. She's winning a lot of arguments these last two chapters. First she gets Malfoy, now Ron. Yeah, she's been dealing, hasn't she? She's been like ruthless. I don't know, what do, you, what do you think about some of this? What do you think about, like, the Hagrid-Maxime conversation, the Snape-Karkaroff conversation? I feel like those are more spoiler conversations. Shall we jump to the spoilers, then? Sounds good. All right, we will be right back with spoilers. Kill the stag! All right, so we are back with the spoiler section of Chapter 23, The Yule Ball. And we're just going to jump right back into the conversations that we left with. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of the conversations that took place in this chapter? Uh, which one do you want to start with? Let's go Snape and Igor. I feel like that's the most interesting. Yeah, there's a lot to that. Obviously, the sign that's becoming more clear is the dark mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're obviously referring to the dark mark. It's becoming a little bit more vivid, less faded. And we already know that Karkov knows Malfoy, and now we know he knows Snape, so pretty big clue that Snape was a Death Eater, too. Yep. It was interesting that Ron, like, hit it on the head of, like, Lucius and Karkaroff knowing each other, and how did that work? Oh, they must have been Death Eaters together. Ha, 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 ha. And then they don't really mention it here. It was like, well, you know, he that's odd that Karkaroff is on a first-name basis with Snape. Meh. <laughs> like, moving on. Here's a thought. If the Dark Mark is becoming clearer as Voldy is nearing his full return, when he dies, what does that Dark Mark look like? I imagine it never leaves, right? That's on you for forever. Did it just fade? Did it, like, instantly fade into almost, like, an outline? Or Yeah, like, I don't know what that would have done. Like, is it barely visible? Or did it... Did it go away completely? I don't know how I that works. I think he said it's becoming more clear, so I think it was probably always there. But what happens when he dies, like, later on? Does that go away? Because he was the one that, like, put it on, right? No, Voldemort wouldn't want it to disappear. Right. But at the same time, I don't think he would have ever considered that he would die. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting, though. It was an interesting thing to just hear the dark mark getting a little bit clearer how calm Snape is about it. Severus is just like, run then. If you're worried about it, run. I'm staying here. What are you gonna do? And then he just walks off and like blasts two students out of a bush. <laughs> like, I really want to know who Snape was as a Death Eater, and they never really talk about it. Was he like an enforcer? Like a, like a Dolohoff or a McNair? I can't see that. I can't see that either. So is he just, like, a strategist? <laughs> like, well, what was his role, per se? We only know one thing he ever did in service of Lord Voldemort, so... Information? Well, one piece of information. That's the only thing we actually know he right. did. So but was he just, still like... still close to Voldemort. 
Yeah. It's interesting, because we know where he ends up as a Death Eater. He's like a right-hand man to Voldy. After he kills Dumbledore. He's still pretty... He was respected before. Yeah, he's he's in the, like, the close circle at that point. But I was looking into some things and I saw something. Hmm. He was close enough to Voldemort that Voldemort was going to spare Lily for him. If Lily didn't fight till the end, he wasn't going to kill her for Snape. That's actually the only reason that Lily was able to put the protection on Harry is because he wouldn't kill her before then. So how close was Snape for Voldemort to do that for him? Better question. How close was Snape to Voldy for Voldy not to immediately kill him when he came back for doing that? Well, does he know exactly how Lily put the protection Eventually on? he figures it out. It took him longer than he would have liked to figure that out. So what did he do before this? Before the prophecy? I had assumed an, inf- I had assumed an informant. But he was still also very young. Yeah. Like some of these Death Eaters must have been followers for years before. Mm-hmm. While Snape was still in school. Well, yes. So he rose fast. Yes. Because some of them are, I think, his old school buddies, right? Yeah, I don't know. But I know we've talked a lot on the podcast about the numbers at Hogwarts. And I know you've had an issue with the numbers at Hogwarts and how they all add up. This chapter was the first glaring example I noticed. There's enough seats to seat 1,200 students in the Great Hall with decorations. You never... That is a lot of students. Yeah, that's a lot of students. And they never talk about the Great Hall being empty or... It's always described as, like, bustling or that's the vibe you get from it. Mm Mm-hmm. But they only talk about 40 kids in Harry's ear. Mm-hmm. The only thing... uh... I, I can't remember if Anna brought this up or not, or if Anna and I have talked about this off air. Uh, we talked in our prep about jokingly like, oh, is there like a Harry's end of the war, end of the first war baby boom? Uh, everybody's happy. Well, war is over. Let's have a kid. That might be. There also might be the opposite. Like that war took a toll and took a lot of people off the grid and off the map. There might have been, like, a lull in population boom from the war. That is still a huge difference in numbers. It was a pretty brutal war. A lot of people died. But yes, you're right. It's a big dip in numbers. So are other classes at Hogwarts bigger? Or is it just around Harry's year that there happens to be, like, a dip? But even if there is a dip, that still doesn't explain the numbers that you're talking about. Yeah, like, <laughs> maybe the other classes are twice as big as Harry's, which I think would be a big boom, but yep. still that's not enough to explain these numbers. Because there could be, like, a boom, or a regular before, a dip around Harry's year specifically because of the first war. And then another boom. And then another boom. Well, then, getting back to what Elizabeth said, how are the teachers supposed to handle that many kids? I agree. I think I brought up the point of, like, I think at some point they said the Transfiguration Department. I'm like, well, department 
makes me think there are more than just McGonagall teaching Transfiguration. I guess you could, in theory, be a one-person department, but that's hard. And I get that we're talking about magic, so maybe grading is automated somehow, or maybe whatever mm. have you. But you still have to actually physically teach the classes. But if the Great Hall seats that many people, and say there's a thousand students, mm -hmm. that would mean there's almost 150 kids in every year, which would be four times Harry's year almost. Are you including the first three years? Because... They weren't even there. Exactly. Like. <laughs> and dorms. Like, how big are these towers? How big are these dorms? How big are these common rooms? But the numbers don't add up throughout the series. Yeah, what like, have you thought about, uh, since you've taken such a, an interest in the numbers, what have you thought about some of our previous conversations? Like, like uh, Quidditch matches. Like, hundreds of people showing up for these Quidditch matches. Well, there's a thing where in interviews, people have asked J.K. Rowling how many students go to Hogwarts, and then they use some numbers to back it up, and no matter what they say, she agrees. So, the first number you're going to come up with is the 40, and then times by 7 you get 280 students, and J.K. Rowling agreed with that and said, yes, there's about 280 kids. And then using one of the Quidditch matches, Somebody came up with a number around 700 and told that to J.K. Rowling, and she agreed and said, yes, there's around 700 kids. And I believe there's a third example of that. Yeah, I mean, you, you, even at the, the Triwizard Tournament first task, you know, you get Harry saying, like, oh, it's hundreds of feet are walking past me. Again, we know for a fact, because she said the numbers in the book, that there are 20. 22 people from these other schools. The 20 students and the two teachers. So that's Durmstrang mm -hmm. and Bobatons, or Bobaton. So then the rest of them are all Hogwarts students? And you mm -hmm. mentioned in the, the non-spoiler that the potential for Durmstrang to literally bring their entire senior class yeah, of students. Yeah, all their 17-year-olds. Okay, now we're talking... Because the graphic that I showed before, I have shown on Instagram and, and other places, Durmstrang is essentially the school for all of mainland Europe, except for, like, France, Spain, and Portugal, which is Bobaton, and Hogwarts, which is essentially Great Britain and Ireland. So, how does that work? And when I looked into schools, they said most countries don't have enough wizards for school so they combine with other countries or just homeschool so again going back to that graphic there's like one school for like 80 percent of africa which covers like a billion people plus <laughs> so so there doesn't seem like there's a lot of witches and wizards i guess that's ultimately the answer right is that there just aren't many but then when you get to buildings or like institutions like in Gringotts the first time Harry goes in there there's a hundred goblins on the floor have you ever gone to a bank and seen a hundred <laughs> workers no <laughs> no like even in downtown Chicago which probably sees thousands of people a day I think I see maybe 50 workers and the impression I get is Gringotts is the only bank for all of Great Britain and Ireland. 
That's the impression that I get, which is still crazy to think about. Not if there's only a few thousand wizards and witches. I mean, that's ultimately, I think, where we're at with this. is, And maybe that's why they're... In, so the, the other thing to bring up is, like, why don't wizards just take over the world? Because they have magic? And it, why are they in hiding? Part of that might be because they're so hilariously outnumbered. <laughs> like, there might be billions to tens of thousands worldwide. But then 100,000 people went to a sporting event. <laughs> right. So, questions. <laughs> questions all over the place. Just makes no sense. It makes no sense. Uh, we'll get off numbers for just a second. We have talked a lot of Ron specifically, and how he has not been the best of himself in these last two chapters. What are kind of your opinions on Ron? And uh, I think he had he had a strong opinion. I mean, is this the worst he's been in the entire series? And. He's also doing this right after he was pretty bad with Harry. Yeah. So he's on a bad streak. He's on a bad streak. I, I will give you that. And he, he's the, Ron, through the first couple of books, has had moments where it's, it's not been good. Like, he was awful to Hermione in Sorcerer's Stone. He was really mean to her for a good portion of that book. And it's... And he's not very nice to her here, obviously. Hermione was pretty bad then, too. She didn't deserve what Ron did, but... Yeah, but she was, like, annoying. He yeah. was mean. <laughs> like, yeah. he was mean about it. Um, but he makes fun of Neville. He dismisses Hermione as, oh, you're a girl, too? Like, yeah, he just tells Jenny that she's going with Harry, pretty much. <laughs> right. It's not Ron's best look, for sure. The other moment that might stick out to people is when he bails in Deathly Hallows and he bolts when it seems to be at its lowest point. I would say he is. What he did then is worse, but there's also a lot going on to bring that out of him. There's a horcrux. Like, he doesn't even know if his family is alive or being killed at that moment. I, I, I get that, but it's also like, what did he, like, what Harry says back to him, it's like, what do you think you signed up for? Like, you volunteered for this. Like, I can't completely defend him, but there's still a lot going on to explain his actions, while in this book, this is just him. Yeah, and, you know, I, I get part of it is... He's a four, and we've talked about like, look, we got to think. They're fourteen-year-old kids. They're not the most mature. They're not the best versions of themselves for sure. They're kids, and they do dumb stuff, and they say dumb stuff. Ron seems to say and do more dumb stuff than, let's say, Harry uh, <laughs> on a fairly regular basis. Not saying I don't like Ron, but he has some bad moments. Let me just get to some moments here that we should get out of the way, because they're kind of interesting. Albus definitely stumbled on the Room of Requirement. And he knows what it is. <laughs> He's fully aware of, like, 
Yeah, that that's what this is. It, do you think he didn't know of it until then? Or do you think he figured it out after that moment? I think he already knew and just wanted to let Harry know about it. Presumably he was fairly well-intentioned as a kid. He wasn't, like, trying to sneak off and hide something. He wasn't, like, whatever, which is how most people stumble upon this thing. There's a significant amount of people who know about the Room of Requirement. You think Dumbledore hasn't figured it out after... Knowing and figuring it out are two different things. I think this was almost entirely for Harry's sake. Just a little nod is like, hey, you might want to look. I mean, he even winked at the end. Right. I don't know, it's interesting. I he, I think he definitely has a curiosity to, like, once he stumbles upon it, he was like, well, that was, that was interesting. Let me figure that out. Whereas your random kid just finds a closet to throw something in and was like, whatever, <laughs> and never mm -hmm. wants to go back to figure it out. So it's probably part of Albus's magic of Albus, I guess. Uh, should mention that Harry takes a special interest in a beetle out in the the grove uh, when he's trying to ignore Hagrid and Madame Maxine's conversation. I forget who says it, but in the previous chapter, I think someone describes Rita as buzzing around. Yes, it's Rita. That, that beetle that he takes an interest in is Rita Skeeter as the... Um, undocumented Animagus, which that's an interesting Animagus form to take. Uh, definitely suits her, though. Do you think there's like a flick of gold somewhere in the beetle for teeth? <laughs> How does that work? I don't know. But I wanted to get your thoughts on two characters that we've kind of had backs and forths with throughout this book, and that's Barty Crouch Jr. and Cedric Diggory. What are your thoughts on those two characters? I like Cedric. He's not one of my favorite characters or anything, but... I don't think there's any reason to hate on him. I think he was Hogwarts champion for a reason. So uh, you don't agree with all the Cedric hate that might become uh, come flying at him from different directions? No, I never really understood it. Yeah. And going back to your poll about the favorite favorite champion, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure all of Flora's votes come from the later books because she's horrible in this book. Especially to this point. Yeah, she's not a very, uh, attra <laughs> she is a very attractive character, but she's also not a very attractive character, if you follow what I'm saying. Um, I guess she warms up a little bit after the second task, but she's still not great. Speaking of polls, I think you had a comment on Unforgivable Curses. Did you want to get yeah. into that now? So I feel like there's almost like a scale, because I feel like the Imperious Curse could be the worst by far, but I also feel like it could be not that bad. Like, I could imagine some drunk wizards, like, using it on each other and be like, stop slapping yourself. That would be one use of it. Yeah. And, like, probably wouldn't like that, but it's not horrible. But at the same time, you could be forced to hurt people you care about and know that you're the one who did it. Which I think would be worse than what any of the other curses could do. Okay. And then the killing curse on the other hand, like, it is always bad, but it's just always the same level of bad. Interesting like, take. Okay. What about the Cruciatus curse? I feel like it's in between. Like, it has a very 
bad baseline like but we see people just use it in like acting out or in instances like harry uses it Mm -hmm. and it's just in that moment he's so angry at what happened like yes it's so horrible but it's not as bad as the killing curse but then what happened to the long bottoms is i think worse than the killing curse fair enough so how would you rank them then like, worst to least worst. <laughs> I feel like you can't really. Like, I feel like the Cone Chris is just always in the middle of that. While the Imperius could have like the lowest lows and the highest highs. and Okay. Cruciatus is like in between that. Uh, speaking of the Unforgivable Curses, real quick. Barty Crouch Jr. Ann and I have been a big... Uh, this sounds weird to say, but a big supporter of the character of Barty Crouch Jr. He is a great character in Wolverton. If you ignore just him looking through clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Hoping I forget that one again. Fair enough. Things from the book that you want to actually just yeah. sweep under the rug again. Fair enough. Do you, Would you say he's one of the better written characters of the series? Or would you disagree with that? Going with the whole twist, I think he is. Like you said, whenever you go back to the other twists, once you know what it is, it's very obvious. Like every clue is just hitting you in the face, like with Ginny or with Quirrell or everyone else. Mm -hmm. And with him, it's all these subtle clues that just get better and better with every Mm V-read. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I love about rereading these books now and... It's been such a long time since I've honestly read these books through. So some of these littler details have been lost on me through the years. But it's interesting rereading these and rediscovering some of the small stuff. And going like, wow, that was really good. <laughs> or that was really well written. Or wow, this was weird. And you got all of that in just this chapter of, wow, that was really interesting. And that was really creepy. Also, going back to his curriculum, how he taught Harry how to fight off the Imperius Curse. Like, even if Voldemort wouldn't want Harry at his strongest, I think Barty Crouch, as a true believer, would want Voldemort to beat Harry at his strongest. Inch, okay. So you're going from the Barty Crouch Jr. wants Voldy to be the strongest and beat the strongest. Yeah. Not Voldy wanting to beat the strongest. Like, he is a true believer. So he thinks Voldemort can beat anybody no matter what. So he's just... And he wants him to prove it, I think. Interesting. Okay. I think Voldy would prefer Harry just to be stronger just so he can ditch that I was beaten by a baby thing. I think (laughs) he doesn't care how strong Harry is. I think he wants Harry to appear strong. Oh, good. All right. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Do you think... Another debate we had recently was, uh, is Voldy afraid of Albus? Do you think he's afraid of Dumbledore, or just cautiously respectful? I think cautiously respectful. I think he believes he would win in a fair fight, but at Hogwarts he might not get a fair fight. Like, the difference between their strengths, like someone like McGonagall or Flitwick could be the deciding factor. If he were to attack Hogwarts. I mean, we get an image of him, and I can't wait to talk about Book 7, because there's so much to talk about in Book 7, but 
at the end of book seven, he's literally in the Great Hall. And he's fighting Kingsley, McGonagall, and Slughorn all at the same time. Without really, like, breaking a sweat. <laughs> Those are three. Well, especially two. Two of them are particularly talented. Not to say Slughorn isn't, but... Dumbledore trusted Slughorn to lead Slytherin in this time, so... I guess I have some respect for him. Can't wait to talk about Slughorn. Slughorn's an is- interesting Slytherin. We forgot about the tissue. Oh, we did! You had a comment on Harry's Christmas gift from the Dursleys. I can't, but thank you for catching that. What did you think about the tissue from the Dursleys? So in one of my rereads, I spent the entire time just searching for mentions of the Deathly Hallows. And you know what I found? One. And I believe it's the next book. The people in the Order are talking about how they need a new invisibility cloak because theirs is too old. That is the only mention of the Deathly Hollows, as if they're more than what they are in the first six books. Okay. So then I looked online, and there was only one other conspiracy theory about a mention of the Deathly Hollows. Harry's three gifts from the Dursleys that are mentioned. Oh, are I do know. Where tissue you're going with paper. This. A toothpick and a coin. A round coin is similar to a stone. Toothpick is like a wand and a tissue is like a cloak. That's the second best mention of the Deathly Hollows in the first six books. I do not like the Deathly Hollows. You don't like the Deathly Hollows? No. The idea of them or the actual practicality of them? Kind of both. Okay. What do you think about that? conspiracy theory of like the Dursleys gave him the Deathly Hallows in like a roundabout way. I I don't believe it. I just think that's how light on references they are and people were stretching. So so you're talking about like when the title of book seven was announced and it was like the Deathly Hallows and people were like combing through it's like tissue coin. When after people read the Deathly Hallows they it's all after they comb through the series and like, haha, there's a sign of the Deathly Hallows here. Hey. The impression I got is when she was writing the seventh book, she realized that Voldemort was too strong to be beaten, so she had to make something. I gotta say, I was thinking that going into the seventh book of like, how is this kid? <laughs> Can, how could he beat Snape first, let alone Voldy? I mean, through the first six books, there's no mention of deities or mythical artifacts. But then the seventh book comes down to mythical artifacts given from a deity. Which, apparently, Moody can still see through. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't like that. I think the Deathly Hallows were just a last-minute add-on because she couldn't figure out how to beat Voldemort. I wouldn't disagree with you. I think I think that was definitely a problem that you ran into because you built up some of your characters so much. And Harry isn't particularly talented. Like, he is talented, but... Well, there's that comment about how there's all these wizards surrounding him that are much better than him. And that's who he's shielded. Still, none of them are their Riddle, Dumbledore, um... God-level wizards. Yeah, or <laughs> Grindelwald. Yeah. Very talented, and there's a group of very talented, but yeah, there's that superior tier of wizard is thin. 
no one else comes close to. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> I just never like the Deathly Hollows. That's fair. Can't wait to have you on during the Deathly Hollows book. <laughs> and kinda go kinda go over that a little bit. That'll be interesting. No, you make a good point though. Still a great series. Still a great series. So we are shutting it down for chapter twenty three. Hope you enjoyed this chapter. Let us know what you guys think on all of the stuff we talked about. We talked about a lot of a lot of theories. <laughs> a lot of different things so let us know this is a big chapter the Yule Ball let us know what you thought about the Yule Ball and uh, we will be back with chapter 24 next week so leave us comments on Twitter on Instagram like comment review on anywhere where you're listening to this podcast that helps us out a ton so thank you all for listening and we'll catch you next week thank you for listening to Hogwarts a podcast If you like what you've heard, please click the subscribe button on your preferred podcasting app and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HogwartsApod.